0: Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind Podcast, our weekly show about how technology is changing the creative industries. Today on the program, Digital Product Passport Explained. A big part of the new EU legislations that are coming to the fashion industry is focused around traceability throughout the supply chains. And a huge part of that is the upcoming requirement that every product sold in the EU will need to carry a Digital Product Passport, DPP for short, with information about raw materials, production, distribution, point of sales, as well as recycling and other end-of-life scenarios. But what exactly is a Digital Product Passport? How does it work in practice and what will it mean for fashion brands? My view is that DPP is the single most important carrier that kind of binds all the EU requirements together into one package or product, whether it's traceability, carbon footprint calculations and end-of-life responsibility and more. Obviously, this is a huge topic and there are several projects out there trying to address this issue. And in this episode, I speak to representatives from three companies that are trying to lead the way. We have Jenny Van, Head of Implementation, Trustrace. Sandra Roos, Vice President, Sustainability, Kappal. And Stefan Olsson, Head of Public Affairs, GS1, Sweden. These people have recently announced a project, a pilot project for Digital Product Passport called Trace for Value. And it addresses how DPP will work in the fashion industry. Now we both had Sandra Roos, who is a famous sustainability researcher, gone uh, sustainability director, as well as GS1 in our latest transformation conference. And this is a sort of continuation of what we talked about then, as well as an opportunity to go deeper on the subject. My name is, as always, Conrad Olson, editor-in-chief and founder of Scandinavian Mind. And before we go on, I just want to mention a couple of things we have coming up in the Scandinavian Mind universe. Of course, Beauty Innovation, our insights newsletter on the beauty industry. We are sending out the save the dates for our upcoming first uh, or actually second Beauty Innovation Talks. The first one was in Copenhagen earlier this year. Uh, The first one in Stockholm, though, it's on October 25, talking about beauty tech. That's Beauty Innovation Talks on October twenty-five. Uh, that's going to take place at our headquarters here on Greveturigatan in Stockholm. So sign up at scandinavianmind.com slash beautyinnovation uh, to get access to that invite. Also, my weekly editor's letter, Observations, goes out every Tuesday. You can sign up by clicking on uh, my column at scandinavianmind.com. Just scroll down a bit to see my face there. Uh, also, just our regular newsletter uh, you know, contains everything about this upcoming events all the content coming out from scandinavian mind it's scandinavian.com newsletter don't miss out on that so, all right enough plugging away about our newsletters here now my conversation with jenny van sandra Rus, and Stefan Ulson. and all right here with a trio of dignitaries and uh, three people working with a project called Trace for Value and will help me and the listeners understand what a digital product passport uh, can be and how it will affect the fashion industry. Uh, I welcome now Jenny Van, Head of Implementation, Trustrace. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. Uh, we have also have Sandra Roos, Vice President, Sustainability Kappal. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. And Staffan Olsson, Head of Public Affairs at GS1 Sweden. Hello, thank you. So I'm going to let you all uh, introduce yourselves a little bit. but And I'm going to start with Jenny, because maybe you can also give a, a, a bit of a background to why you three are in this room together because I invited you because you are running this project Trace for Value. It's kind of a pilot project of what a digital product passport can be and I was so uh, fascinated by the presentation you guys had a few weeks ago that I wanted to invite you all to the podcast. But So, Jenny, uh, describe uh, uh, your role in this and maybe a few words on, on the Trace for Value project.
1: Absolutely. So... um. Trace for Value is a, is a project that is managed by RISE and sponsored uh, sponsored by Vinova. Um, and basically, it's a prolonging of uh, an initiative within European Commission that is uh, a prolonging of the initiative, the Green Deal, to start to see how can the textile industry uh, move towards become more sustainable. And in that journey, also, how do we improve the circularity in that. Uh, so the trace for value is a program uh, and uh, DPP in Texas is a part of that program that uh, I'm in lead of together with several um, actors and stakeholders in this area, among Sandren and Stefan. Um, so what we'll do here is that we will run a pilot and see based on what we know of this coming initiative as per today. How should that be able to um, be implemented in a real-case scenario?
0: And and I think people uh, might know what um, TrustRace is. Uh, You have been featured in in our platform quite a few times, but uh, just give the headlines of of TrustRace and your role in this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so Trust Trace, we are an an IT SaaS platform for traceability. Uh, We focus on the compliance data management with the textile uh, value chains. Um, And we provide solutions that um, capture and digitalize uh, the supply chain and material um, traceability data. And this data should be able then to be shared between brand suppliers and uh, as a specific focus within DPP, also the end consumers. Mm.
0: Wonderful, we'll get back to you uh, Sandra, I'm going to bring you into the discussion, uh, so friends of in Mind who visited the Transformation Conference a few weeks ago saw you on stage uh, we talked about some of these issues uh, so describe your role briefly and why Kappol has engaged in this uh, project
2: hmm? Uh, so my role as vice president sustainability is to lead uh, the strategic sustainability work at capon uh, and part of this is of course uh, creating transparency in the supply chain uh, enabling circular business models and of course uh, applying or complying with uh, all legislation coming such as the digital product passport uh, and for us this Trace for Value process or project has been uh, an opportunity to to have a learning in the organization about what is a digital product passport, what does it mean, do we have the data, where do we have the data. So it's been uh, really hands-on uh, deep dive into creating a digital product passport, so learning by doing.
0: All right, I, I'm so curious to hear about these learnings. Uh, so, but let's try to explain the basics here. Um, I've been hearing about this digital product passport for maybe a, a year, a year and a half or so. It's kind of been murmuring in in the fashion industry. It's something that's coming. What is it? And then I uh, visited a conference called Tech Arena this spring, where I saw uh, Stefan on stage talking about uh, DPP. Um, which was kind of the first time I really got a grip of of this whole thing. It's a huge undertaking uh, when it's being implemented, and of course, it's 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 because of this new uh, legislation coming from from the EU. Uh, but Stefan, just describe um, G's one's interest in this and, and your role, and 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 I'd like you to maybe also then explain what a DPP is. Let's let's get into sure. It.
3: Uh. So I'm Stefan. Uh, I'm with Just One Sweden, um, we've been working on DPP for, for some time now trying to get a grasp of what it is, we as well. Uh, it comes, the the, the name, we, we've been seeing it from since a number of years, it came in mainly out of the EU uh, and their legislative process uh, where they wanted to Create a, a digital representation of products, but maybe just I should start with just giving a short background on GS1, who we are. Sure. Uh, so GS1 is is GS1 Sweden is part of a global organization called GS1. Uh, we used to call ourselves EAN, so EAN barcodes is our is our you know well known brand, but we the organization is called GS1 since many years now. So we we're, we're a global organisation. We're represented in 116 countries. We have two million customers around the world, uh, and people claim that uh, you know our barcodes are scanned 10 billion times a day, and we're not for profit. So we try to help uh, help customers get the most benefit out of using our standards. That's pretty much what we do. And when we saw this DPP thing coming, we we thought maybe we we can help here uh, because. We, what is being described as uh, as the dpp infrastructure or the for the more technical sides that the eu is is presenting to to the world is pretty much what we've been doing for almost 50 years so it all builds on a you know a, a unique identifier on products that you can that should be machine readable and be able to link to a digital representation of that product and we've been doing all of those things for for many years so so for hmm. us, this is a new challenge to take on to to make sure that our stuff really works, and also working together with a lot of other stakeholders because not we're not the only ones that can provide help here. There are other standards bodies and <clears throat> other technologies that come may come into play as well. Hmm.
0: Mustafa, maybe you can describe because. Uh, in your presentation you had a slide which I, I still you know have on my mind where it's a big circle where you describe f- it's it, you know from uh, the sourcing of raw materials into the production of of a product uh, on its way to the distribution uh, from the brands out to the retailers. Uh, then the retailers are, are selling this product. Con- it gets into the consumer's hands. And after the consumers have used the products, it needs to be recycled or reused or, or uh, uh, you know taken care of in many ways. So we're talking about the entire lifespan of a product that's going to be somehow documented In this, in this DPP. Yes. Uh, Uh, Am I am I right? You're right,
3: and but it will depend on on the product category. So if the product is is a detergent, there is no no need to keep track of of, you know you just use it up and then you're done. But for a Mm. garment or a chainsaw or a laptop computer, something like that, you want to probably track more, and and in some cases track also uh, events that happen to that product during during the use phase of its life. So if you repair it or you change a few things on it, maybe that is data that is relevant from a, from a sustainable point of view. And also a recycler may want to know if you changed and added new materials into the product after it was manufactured. So not only the data from the manufacturer is needed, but also data that may have been added later. If you change the battery in a laptop or if you change uh, metal in the buttons on a shirt or something like that. But but right. this but there, there will be um, product category-specific uh, rules coming out of the EU as time goes by.
0: Right. And the timeline that we have is 2030, right? That's where uh, the proposal is that every product sold in the EU will need or require a, a product passport.
3: I think for some categories, a bit earlier than that. So the the, the kind of the, the horizontal, as they call it, the, the general... Uh, ov- Baseline legislation, which was which is a framework, which would mm. most likely be decided on uh, Q1 2024, maybe Q2, but that doesn't tell you anything about the data points and which categories are, are affected. So that will come later. Uh, you know, um, it's being forecasted that textile is it will go out very early in this. So there will will be so-called delegated acts describing the detailed rules for that, also may be coming out in 2024, 2025, and then there may be a grace period of perhaps 18 months or so before it comes into force. So 2026, 2027 probably for, for textile. But that's just guessing from my side.
0: Right, right. No, a lot of guesswork and a lot of... Uh, it's a maze trying to understand the uh, all the ins and outs of the EU. I, I've been trying to do it now for six months. Uh, Jenny, I want to bring... Because I mean, what we're talking about here is basically some kind of digital carrier of of information so and and it kind of it relates to this uh, uh, you know idea of making fashion more sustainable but you know the passport is is, it's just like a tool Uh, so it you know it it depends on what we fill it with and how we use that data can you talk from from your perspective what do you think we need to fill this this uh, passport with in order to make uh, and how does this kind of enable the fashion industry to be more sustainable
1: I think just raising the need for a DPP or a digital product passport is putting the finger on the importance of sustainability or it it putting the finger on importance of transparency. And with that traceability, because there is no um, transparency, there is no sustainability without being transparent uh, at the same time. So this is setting the scene of what's important for the fashion brands to focus in going forward um, and that that this should be available for the end consumer and, and the authorities so how do we do that how do we actually because as you say this visualization of a product uh, in someone's uh, mobile phone when you scan the qr code that's attached to the government if that's not providing you with any relevant data it doesn't add any value. So what I would like to say is that the solution for how to get that data into that QR code, or not into the QR code, but into the visualization, that's sort of the key. And our experiences is saying that it takes long time for an organization within the fashion industry to actually start to accomplish and collect this data and make it available. So I think that is one of the key, and and Sandra, you can fill on what you, what you do for for Kapal, but this is the reason for why to get started as soon as possible. Because, mm. despite as Stefan says, there is a lot of unclearities still how this should be managed, but we know a lot also, so for sure we can start. It it's no need to wait, and and we also have an idea of the technical framework that EU is is, uh, suggesting. So it's not only for the brands to find what data should should there go after, but also how should they store it? How should they distribute this data? So we don't know everything, but we know more than enough to get started.
0: Right. So Sandra from from a fashion brand's perspective, so the traceability has been kind of a buzzword in in fashion for for many years and when I uh started learning about DPP or digital product passport, it was, it was the first time I kind of felt like okay, maybe this is the tool that actually will will, you know, help realize this across the entire industry. Maybe we need this kind of standardized way of of uh, uh, tra- tracing tracing data, but let's talk a little bit about what kind of data you want from a, as a fashion brand or or and need, uh, and and what type of data are you actually collecting in 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 this project.
2: I mean, uh, traceability is uh, one part of it. And with traceability, we, we usually mean that we know who is uh, producing our garments, who has uh, done the weaving, the dyeing of the fabric, who has done the yarn and, and where does the fiber come from. Uh, so traceability is uh, sort of the key to who are we going to ask the sustainability questions. And then when we know who we are working with, who we are not working with, then we can start to ask questions about um, human rights handling. We can start to ask questions about chemicals. We can ask questions about energy use and energy sources. So, um, I mean, just like Jenny says, we don't know the exact data points that there will be. But since we know what is important for sustainability today, we know that... Well, probably there will be something about climate, probably there will be something about chemicals, probably there will be something about human rights and and wage levels. Uh, So I think to not overcomplicate things, if we start with what we know is important to report on and try to collect that data from every actor in the supply chain, I think we've come very far.
0: Right. And and, and talk about what you have been uh, collecting or or the plan is within this project from from Kappal's point of view, so so, so to speak.
2: Mm. Uh, So in this project, we work with two products. It's the Göran trousers and the Ulle sweater. So it's really two products. There you go. Uh, and they're produced at different factories in different countries with different supply chains, which makes it... I mean, you start with two suppliers and then you get a lot of actors involved. Um, but what we uh, do is we search the whole supply chain for data and then fill in the data fields in the matrix. And, um, yeah, so so for this pilot... Uh, In Trace for Value, we uh, sort of follow this data protocol. And then we also work with Trust Trace, uh, like in a bigger perspective. We are, um, uh, what's it called, onboarding all our suppliers now in week 46 to the tool. Uh, So this is not something that we, we don't work with traceability just for the Trace for Value project, but traceability. Mm. Via trust race is really something that we do for all our products and, and all our supply chains, which we are very proud of. Uh, and, and, you know, there are so many tools. One of the first questions we ask is, do you use the HIG tools? This global um, set of tools, the facility module for environment, the facility module for social impact, um, that Sustainable Apparel Coalition has developed... Uh, if they already report in, in uh, standardized tools such as HIG or, or something else, then, then and send these modules to us and share them with us, then we already have a lot of data that we need. And if they don't, then we have this uh, set of, of questions that we uh, ask all our suppliers.
0: Right. Talk about the process of... of- it's like finding suppliers that can provide this data. Maybe you know, asking suppliers to to sort of pro- provide this data and, and comply with with all these things. What what's that been like? And and I mean, that I'm sure it has to affect how you choose your suppliers and or when will affect in in the future. I mean, that's got to be when I talk to fashion brands. I mean, you couple has at least a certain scale to do this, and you know they they've been uh, wise enough to hire you in, in your role. But for smaller brands, I, I sense a lot of frustration and 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 worry actually about this. How how are we supposed to to put the right demands of our suppliers? Uh, sometimes the brands don't even know you know, maybe they know the factory they're working with, but beyond that, they don't know where, where all the threads and, and sort of uh, raw materials are coming from. But so from your perspective, working with this, how do you foresee this relationship in, between uh, brands and, and the, the factory suppliers?
2: Mm. I mean, this is difficult because you, you really have to find business partners that share the same vision of the future as you do, because if, if you put requirements on, On a factory and and the top management, they don't believe in uh, traceability or they don't believe in in the climate uh, impact or something, uh, then then, uh, they will just, you know, do a show for you and and maybe not uh, change or maybe not chase their supply chain um, as Mm. agreed. And, and then you come back one year later and nothing has happened. So I think uh, this like partnership uh, many people are talking about also, but to actually partner up with suppliers that share the same vision. Uh, and that's um, maybe easy said than for capital with a certain purchase power, we are not as big as other brands. And sometimes we trot after, uh, the bigger brands and uh, are, are happy to get into a large factory where someone else has already like, done the sustainability work. And sometimes we are big enough to um, transition a factory and give them so mm-hmm. much orders so that uh, there will be an economic incentive for them. But that's really um, a point and And uh, we can see... Um, that that many factory owners out there they understand the whole thing they understand about the climate change it's here they they see the the floodings they see the fires Uh, but then there are are still uh, um, companies that that maybe uh, do not really care because they work a lot with maybe the domestic market in the production country where no such requirements are put and, and so we will have to um, we will continue working with those that that can support us in in our vision
0: yeah I feel like this is kind of your your wheelhouse in in how you collect collect data from from suppliers uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience with kind of uh, you know for one like having uh, factories and suppliers out there in in different countries uh provide the data and do you think the the notion of a dpp will that help or just complicate things
1: um yes i mean dpp will put uh, focus on this is important but to 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 continue on what Sandra says, I think for this to work, not from only a DPP point of view, but from a sustainability point of view, there needs to be uh, a build of of, of trust between all the actors uh, in the the supply chain. And as per today, we can see uh, those brands with having sustainability as part of their business model. They are the most um, the, the most effective ones that when it's actually coming to also be able to uh, to to gather this traceability data, because there is a trust between that brand and the supply chain, and and uh, I'm in contact with manufacturers in Asia, as I, as Sandra says, and and there is they are aware of this for sure. Um, But there always also needs to be a trust and a business, uh, an economical incentive in in, in actually acting in the right way. Because, you know, the climate change is more and more obvious for every year. No one can say, I I didn't understand or or, I didn't know, I didn't see this coming. And I think that is one of the key drivers for me personally, for Trustrace and for the DPP initiative is that no one should be able to say, I didn't know. We will know. And there is, if there is a will, this is uh, absolutely possible to, to gather all this data that, that we need to make this uh, improve. And, and when we have the data, you can't say, I didn't know, but you can actually act up on that data. And and Kapol is one of the front runners, and I'm super uh, proud to be able to to cooperate with you in this area. Um, And there will be followers, and there will be slow starters, and so on. But as someone is is starting this journey, everyone will need to follow.
3: If I may jump in, I think also in this case, there's a a strong case for having standardized ways of sharing data. so the upstream trading partners will have one way of sharing their data regardless on on in which supply chain their products go. So they don't have to you know sit and register manually uh, traceability data into 10 different platforms because their their brand customers choose different systems. so and I think the role for standards there is to lower the barrier to make it easier and also to, to boost competition between various technology providers, so that the best one, you know, you can compete on on in other ways than vendor lock. Uh, and I know TrustRace is very committed to standards, so I dare say this in in <laughs> in this context. But it's but it's it's I think it's an important thing uh, to make sure that it's based on open standards and that the standards are must be made in a way that they simplify uh, the way uh, the, the data sharing. As well. Including all the upstream mm. uh, trading partners.
0: So talk about where we are in terms of these standards, because I'm now in. Co- I mean, I mean, now we're having this conversation. I'm also in contact with other. Uh, technology developers that uh, claim to play a role in digital product passport. There are even companies out there that claim they they sell a DPP that's ready and done. That feels to me a bit premature since we don't even know where the legislation will land. But Stefan, maybe you can at least paint a picture of how you would like this standardization to to play out and what players do we need. Because one way of thinking about this is like, okay, so there is this uh, digital product passport. That's one type of technology that needs to be connected to the physical garments. You need to read it. Uh, I'm I'm assuming you you want to push for the barcodes there and or and your technologies. Uh, but then, you know, during the course of the lifetime of the the garment which we're talking about here, there will need to be different data suppliers. I'm assuming into this. Uh, product passport. So, as at best as you can, can we can we kind of describe what the kind of architecture here is? <laughs> yeah, uh,
3: not really. <laughs> no. What we're saying is no, because nobody really knows the requirements. Yeah. Uh, and and the standards uh, effort always starts with the requir- requirements. You know, a lot of requirements are known uh, on the you know what we want to accomplish or what the legislators want to accomplish. I should say uh, we're just here to help, but. Uh, in order to to get the standards going the the EU has commissioned now the Sen and CENELEC which is the standards bodies at European level to start developing DPP standards and they don't start from scratch they've been giving a, a huge list of existing standards uh, to be form the basis but you have you know I think we have all the all the standards or most of the standards that are kind of comply as the ingredients if you will, for the DPP exist, but there is no recipe yet that tells you exactly which ingredients and what's the quantity of each thing. So this needs to be done in the next coming years. Um, I think SEN and the EU Commission just recently agreed on on, on this, this task for SEN, and many of us will participate in that work. Um, and, and adding you know, bringing in uh, our user communities, bringing, bringing in our knowledge and uh, and and bringing in even more important the knowledge of users and, and service providers that have already done this. But there, is, there are a number of ways to, you know, we've been experimenting a little bit and in prototyping in, in, in some projects and there are multiple ways of adding data to an existing product passport. We just have to pick the one that's, that works or that one mm. is most suitable, especially if you, if you have the situation where a brand owner puts the product on the market, but he doesn't want anyone else to tamper with his data. So why should he allow, you know, anyone to add data in a platform that he supports? Maybe he wants to have the upscaling or, or refurbishment of products himself. And uh, so there needs to be a mechanism. So if, if data is added by an independent downstream you know stakeholder that is still discoverable for the consumer uh, and that's one of the challenges there are many challenges but that's one of them uh, access control and things like that is also a challenge i think because ip is a huge issue in the dpp right. so you know a market surveillance authority or a recycler may may need much more data than the brand owners want to reveal to to the general public including their their competitors uh, so i think that is also an important thing that needs to be uh, worked on. So there are, an, an, there are a number of gaps. But there, there are a lot of things that we know how they will work.
0: But but, but just to that point, just to clarify, you're talking about there, there's some data that's going to be attached to the passport that will be visible kind of for everyone and the consumer can go in and see where it's been produced and so forth. But there's actually some data that will be required to be documented, but that's kind of proprietary to the brand uh, about... Uh, yeah, things. I think brands
3: will... The the forecast is that brands will be asked by the surveillance authority to to provide more data than they want to share with the general public. Ah,
0: all right, interesting, interesting. Uh, S- S- sanda maybe you can describe how how uh, how much do you cover in in this pilot project? Uh, because you don't cover the whole kind of life cycle of the product, from my understanding, right? But so, how much do you cover in, in the in the trace uh, for value project, and how do you see this go on later?
2: Mm, well, we cover all the the tiers. Uh, we usually talk about four tiers: the garment, the fabric, the yarn, the fiber. Uh, so we mm. do uh, put in data of all the tiers, uh, since that's how far we come. Uh, but what we don't have is uh, the climate footprint, for example, uh, and and that's because. We we are not really sure on how to to calculate the public uh, carbon footprint uh, to to not uh, make a green claim uh, that will be (laughs) uh, scrutinized by authorities and found illegal or something. So uh, that's why we have been reluctant to to, uh, publish this footprint data. But isn't that
0: kind of what you want in this? Yeah. Like you, as a consumer, you would actually want, that's that's the actual upside of this. I want I to know how much uh, carbon footprint my, my garment is. What are the challenges in, in providing that information?
2: Well, the challenge is that uh, there's a debate, you can say, between how much generic data and specific data you need to have in order to provide, mm. um, well, an environmental declaration of a specific product. So uh, again, the HIG tools that I talked about before, they have this HIG product module. And when H&M and m and used this HIG tool with a lot of generic data in Norway, the Norwegian Consumer Authority actually took them to court. So um, that's not where we want to go. So still there is a bit uncertainty about how much you can say about the specific product based on specific data versus generic data. But I hope that soon <laughs> this will be solved and that uh, both the, the eco-design legislation uh, and also the PEF, the product environmental footprint that EU is developing, will sort out, like, what do you need to make a product environmental footprint for a specific product?
0: Mm. So uh, and are you saying you would like it to be able to include some generic data? That is, I mean, I'm, it sounds impossible to have each specific garment to have each like.
2: I mean, in the future, that that's the way to go to have specific data for for all tiers. So it's specific mm. data about the the weaving, the the cotton cultivation, etc. But as for now, we we are. You know on our, our way to to start to get to know uh, our tier two and tier three so we don't have that specific data yet. and it's also huge amounts of data like how are we going to store this? how are we going to use this data without having uh, hundreds of servers uh, using a lot of energy. So uh, it, it's not uh, it's not only the more data the better. Uh, but we really right. need to have sort of the right data and stored for the right time, etc.
3: And this links back, Conrad to to the circle that you mentioned uh, previously. Yeah. Uh, the earlier phases of the circle, you know, going back from the manufacturer and all the maybe four tiers, as Sandra mentions here. If those data flows are are digitalized in a good way, they will automatically generate all the all the kind of basic data the raw data that is needed to make those calculations uh, and not only those calculations they will also make up the data that is needed for for any ESG reporting and for any you know compliance with other legislations as well such as deforestation such as such as due diligence and, and things like that so so we think that you know digital supply chains uh, is the future uh, and we just have to you know figure out how far you can go in in terms of granularity but uh, ideally you know if if you don't care about how much service you need maybe you know pretend that that issue doesn't exist for a second there's really no technical reason why you shouldn't be able to tell a specific product what that specific product carbon footprint is if you have the right data behind it but just it's just if is it worth the effort is it possible uh, is it also politically possible to you know to make us make um, companies reveal as, as much data as is needed to, to do this. But you will need to know, you know, what are the solar panels on this factory in this country and who produced the solar panels and what's the sustainability parameters for those solar panels? You know, you, there's a lot of data you need to be, to, to be granular, you know, and granularity is endless, <laughs> but I guess you'll have to come to a right level that is feasible at some point in time.
0: So Jenny, maybe you can provide what, what is the right level of of granularity?
1: Uh... Well, I'm I'm not an expert within how to calculate uh, carbon footprint for sure, but we're following that for a couple of years now. And again, I mean the need for standardization in in the calculation. Um, but to start with again, I mean just knowing where your stuff is coming from, from vo- what um, fabric. Um, where is the value chains? Where is the, uh, the the dyeing, the printing? Where is this done? That's, I mean, when you start to identify that, that's a huge step forward. And when we have the geolocalization of where your stuff has been produced, then there is a, a lot number of calculations that we can put on top of that as soon as the calculation is clarified how, how it should be done.
0: So describe uh, so from my understanding uh, the, the, the the DPP pilot that you are doing uh, goes up until uh, the, when the brand gets the product right You are not uh, uh, documenting the transportation out to individual stores and so forth. Sandra, maybe you can provide uh, a specification of what like how, how far do you go?
2: No, I'm not really sure actually uh, maybe I should know, but i I think uh, for for um, maybe you know any better.
1: Well, I you say transportation is not considering as per today, but mm. on the other hand, what's been calculated previously is that yes, transportation has a, a footprint for sure, but the production footprint is so much bigger. So that's why we start with a production right. footprint. And so we will have, until it reaches sort of the store from a production point of view, what's not yet, what we haven't figured out yet, what, what's happened after, uh, and how do, we, uh, how do we involve the stakeholders that will um, take care of the product after it's sold? If we have a resell, uh, repair or recycle, how do we add their solution? How do we digitalize their data um, and how do we add that to the, uh, the, the product passport? That is something we are looking into right now, also from a technique point of view. But but in that area, the legislation and requirement has come even less um, far, so there we, we we really need to understand how should that be done after the sale of the product is done. Mm. Um, and also, I need to say and, and that I would like to encourage everyone that has the possibilities to how do we start to build business models and and uh, support these companies that would like to provide, recycle, repair and resell um, uh, offerings. Uh, To to the end consumers, because that area is uh, it's very, very early uh, in the early days of of, uh, how to create uh, circular business models. But when that is in place, um, the DPP framework that we are looking into now from a technical point of view, um, it will for sure be able to scale and include this um, post sales uh, actors as well.
0: Well, I, I, you know, re- reselling recycling is it's 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 its own show, I think. Uh, so we're not going to get into all that. But le- can we envision a little bit about um, how the DPP will, what kind of role it will play for the consumer, and what's what what are the upsides? I've I've seen examples in the luxury industry, for instance. I think the Richmond Group is doing experiments or or actually have launched products, where. Of course if you have a very you know uh, you know highly valued luxurious product there's going to be value for the consumer in some kind of proof of of, of the, the value because there's so much uh, 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 copies out there and and so forth. Uh maybe that's not going to be as uh, you know relevant for a t-shirt that's you know uh, disposable it, or uh, underwear or whatever that's kind of disposable and, and and don't have this kind of um value on the on the second hand. Market, but starting with the consumer, I'm I'm curious. All of you, like I'm sure you've thought about this. Um, how do we incentivize the consumer to upload information to the passport? Because some somehow, I, I guess they have to be connected to it, and and you know what happens after. Stefan, maybe you have some words. Here.
3: Well, it's a little bit out of out of my my uh, regular. <laughs> Things that I, I deal with, but of course, from earlier examples on, on traceability implementations in the food industry, like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, I, we went to to visit, you know, to, to see in some other countries where you can. They put a, a QR code on products, and you can scan and see where this fish came from. But the statistics were were like, it, well, the first week, a hundred consumers did this, and then nobody ever used it and they say well maybe it's customers or our consumers are happy enough that they know that they can do this uh, I, I saw a recent study from france uh, where it comes in food where they have a system like in many uh, european countries called NutriScore, where it's a, you know, a green red yellow light on food packages telling you if this is good for you or not this is, so it's a very simplified thing and people seem. Most consumers don't seem to care. They buy, buy what they always buy, but the manufacturers have made the the products better. So the effect is still that p- people eat better food, uh, but not for the reasons you expected. So right. so. Uh, and there is there is a we're just in uh, a Venova pro- project is just being initiated to to study more, you know, how consumers are affected by by this. Kind of transparency and how much is the you know is their behavior really affected by by having access to that kind of data? But that's focusing on on electronics and it hasn't started yet, so there's nothing to share on that. But it's a, it's an interesting topic. Sometimes we think, sometimes it seems like uh, some people think it has a bigger impact than it really has. But uh, who am I to to know? <laughs> that maybe that depends on how you communicate it.
0: But Sandra, how do you foresee a digital product passport play a role with the consumer? Is it is it a positive thing? Is it a burden? Is it just complicated, or is it actually adding value to to the brand and the product?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's uh, probably it will just like be to the the key to the house. It's something that you use a lot, but you don't really think so much about it or care about it. But uh, if it if it adds you value if you're going to resell something on a platform and and you get more value if you can fill in the the part did you do any repair did you change any buttons or zippers or if if you have filled in that information like no I, nothing or yes i did uh, and and you can get a higher price um, and and maybe how many washes did you do to it and and you can sell it for a higher price i think it will be just like with you know cars uh, that you keep a record of whatever you' done to your car and, and then the next uh, buyer will will be um, well have more certainty of what they buy. Uh, like did, did this car be in a car crash and repaired? <laughs> yes or no, good to know if you buy a car. And the same with uh, textiles that that you, if, if it's yeah, if it's value creating for the consumer, they will use it
0: and have you f- foreseen anything with terms of end of life i mean there's there's this other legislation called the extended producer responsibility that that the eu is talking about where where uh in various ways you have to be responsible for what happens to the product after you sell it it's not just you know it doesn't leave it leave, leaves the the store and, and it's bye bye you still have to engage in it have you uh, given any thought of uh, or worked a lot on on that kind of part of of the 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 chain.
2: Yeah, and this is the large value I think uh, that to to get back an item and you are not really sure of where is it produced, when, with which chemicals, what is the exact composition. Uh, instead of having to do a lot of guesswork, uh, you can actually know that this is a Capal garment or a garment from another brand and. Um, that opens up for for planning for what to do with the garment already when you create it you know that in step one you will maybe do an enzyme washing in step two uh, to be the enzyme washing is to like restore the garment And, and in step two you will do something else and in step three you will maybe be able to material recycle it but uh, there is a, a, like a world of opportunities opening up. Actually, when we know when we know it's not like a mixed heap of a pile of uh, clothing with different brands, different years, but we know uh, exactly what this garment is. That will create so much more opportunities.
1: And I'm thinking, Sandra, also that it will create opportunities for adapting the design of new garments based on knowledge for what the previous, co- uh, previous uh, seasons and styles has, has uh, sort of ended up exactly yeah and then we talk sustainability a closed
2: scheme. feedback loop yeah i mean that's uh, yeah. it's really a whole new world in front of us and,
3: and also if i may add there's also a lot of discussion on on the more practical side of this whether you should have Data carriers on the garments, not only barcodes but also RFID tags. Or, or there are various types mm-hmm. of RFID tags, so you can automate the sorting. So if you have a common sorting facility where you, you know, all the garments from all the brands come in in, a, in just a pile, you can you can robotize or automate the the sorting and send back. So okay, so all the Capal uh, garments go in one pile and it's sent back to Capal, and you know exactly what's in your product, so you know how to how to utilize them best.
0: Super interesting. Uh, I feel like you, we can have one show on each part of this circle <laughs> that you once showed me, Stefan. um We're coming up on the end of this conversation uh maybe Jenna you can describe where the this project is going uh and what are kind of the next steps and where are you want, hoping to land uh, I know there's a some kind of touch base at the beginning of twenty twenty four so what are the hopes uh for 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 the for the results of, of this project?
1: So I think to point out the main uh, uh, how to measure success of this is really to do insight and learnings for sure. Uh, And as per now, up to now, we have um, public the data protocol and the journey of uh, creating that protocol has been provided us with huge insights. So what's happening right now is that we have provided uh, a framework, an architectural framework that uh, we believe in based on requirements that are known for example that the data should be uh, distributed meaning that it shouldn't be uh, until one source but when a consumer scans the QR code then with their mobile they get uh, open up a website in their mobile and in there that we call that a DPP interface and that interface is calling sort of a library that we refer to as a resolver. And in that library, it holds a lot of URLs. And these URLs are saying, where is the information stored? Because it can be several data sources for this unique product. So via API, it collects this data and it shows up instantly for the the consumer in the web interface in their mobile phone. And this is exactly what we are building right now. Uh, to be ready by early next year Uh, and there we would like to showcase yes uh, we can do this in practice and then i'm sure we will run into a lot of challenges questions uh, along the way and these questions we would like to share with a broader public of of uh, eu commission that is actually working on requirements as well as every other uh stakeholders that's involved in in making a dpp come true in the future uh, to see this is the learnings that we have done uh, please continue to build your future pilots and future solutions on these learnings so we can have this um, uh, in the industry uh, by on on uh, and adding it to the industry uh, in a collaborative manner.
0: So it sounds like we have a reason to do a follow up show uh, beginning of next year. I'd like all of you to to uh, before we end there just briefly. Um, Uh, give a recommendation or a tip or a a link or or something uh, for people who are curious about DPPs and there's a lot of people working in the fashion industry listening to this where should they start? What's a good way to enter into this? Uh, So uh, uh, you, you can you can plug your own thing or or maybe something else. Uh, you know, certainly I hope this conversation is a start for many people. But where do we go from here, uh, Sandra? Uh, recommendation?
2: I think uh, it's it's good to actually deep dive in, for example, the data protocol from Trace 4 Value, which is public and out there for people to look at, and and really go through and not not maybe just think that yeah, this is data we have in the PLM system, but actually consider. <laughs> exactly where in the PLM system is the field that is going to cover this, uh, or do we, do we have it in two fields that we should merge into one, etc. Because the devil is in the detail and it's just when you, when you start to understand like exactly how is it going to be, the data going to be created, then, uh, then you have come a long way.
0: Mm. Stefan, what's your recommendation?
3: Well, I, I like everyone here says. Well, you know, don't wait. Uh, st- start small, but start now. Uh, if you haven't started digitalizing your supply chain at all, uh, it's it's you know this is a good time to to start. And if you want to get more, you know, more insights on the DPP concept, GS1 Sweden has created a landing page on our website gs1.se, so you can go there and, and take a look. It's available in English and Swedish uh, as a starting point.
0: Jenny? Mm.
1: Yeah, of course I need to put a word for Trust Trace here as well that uh, please reach out um, if you would like to have some support and insights uh, of where to start related to how do you actually start to gather this data, uh, how do you reach out to the suppliers at scale um, to start with uh, trace, trace where your garments are, are uh, originated from. But mm. uh, also, again, I mean, Trace for Value uh, website holds a lot of good information. So that, that's a good starting point.
0: Wonderful. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. Uh, so it was my ambition with this conversation to explain uh, DPP. I think uh, let's consider this a starting point. There's much more to be studied and learned, obviously. Uh, thank you so much, Yevan Sandarus, and Stefan Olsson, for sharing your insights today.